Uh, this morning, brothers and sisters, we will be in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And uh, if you didn't bring one with you and don't have one on your phone, there are some blue ones in the back that you're welcome to get up and go get. And then after the gathering, you're welcome to take that home with you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, or you can just leave it in your seat, and we will clean them for uh, the next uh, week, next Sunday. In those blue Bibles, uh, will be on page 541, page 541. Uh, if you're new with us, we have been journeying through the book of Acts together as a church. Uh, we are a church that believes God continues to speak, and He does so through His Word. And we are a people who aim to get together every Sunday morning and listen to what God would say to us. So thank you to those of you who are here, and also if you're watching online, grateful for uh, your investment this morning. Uh, after this gathering ends, we'll be recording a, a sermon Q&A that we'll post on YouTube later in the week. So if you have any questions, maybe there's a verse that I, I don't get time to spend much time on, or uh, perhaps you have some uh, question or even objection to something that we would be talking about this morning, we'd love to hear from you. This number on the screen, you can text any questions or comments you have, and uh, we will record that later in the week. We'll post that on YouTube and would love to interact with you uh, in that way. So Acts 17, 1 to 15 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, friends, it's uh, a little over 100 miles from where you sit this morning to uh, Tucson. Now, why you'd go there, I don't know, but uh, it's 108 miles to be exact. And that's roughly the same distance that it is from the ancient city of Philippi, where we saw Paul last week on his missionary journey, to where he'll be today in Thessalonica. Although we'll be moving to a new city, we won't be finding that there's a new mission. The mission is the same. It's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in love and power and to start new churches. That's certainly what we'll see this morning uh, as we continue in our study together. So if you would follow along with me, either online or here in person, in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, when they, uh, that's Paul's missions team, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now you'll notice, uh, friends, that there right in the beginning we see that there were apparently quite a few Jews in Thessalonica. By this point in history, the uh, leader in Rome, Tiberius Claudius had already expelled the Jews from the city of Rome, and it's likely some of them had settled in independent cities like Thessalonica. This probably accounts for why there was enough Jews in the city to have a synagogue. So Paul and his team did what they always did. They headed into town and they looked to share the gospel first with the people who might be the most ready to believe, namely people who already believed what we would call today the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, the, the first two-thirds or so of it, 
from Genesis to Malachi are all books that were written before Jesus came for his earthly ministry. And the books after it, Matthew through Revelation, were written after. Now, no doubt on these three Saturdays and then during the week, Paul sought to lovingly and passionately encourage people to come to trust Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't started school yet, you're a student, then uh, that's coming quickly for you. Who's feeling excited about that? A few, actually. Interesting. Great. Well, that's unusual, and it's awesome. So, I want to start getting your brain working again, okay? Exercising that muscle. So, notice with me, if you'd look closely at verses 2 and 3, that you'll see four specific verbs being used to describe the beautiful evangelistic work that Paul did in this city. You'll see them there. There's, uh, the first one is reason, then explain, then prove, then proclaim. Reason, explain, prove, and proclaim. Each of these words give us a window into faithful word work. Let me see if I can explain. To, to reason with people is to take the Word of God and make a logical, consistent, coherent argument. Paul would have unrolled the scrolls of the Old Testament and said, look right here, this is talking about Jesus. He is the Messiah. The second verb, explain, means literally to open. The third, to prove, is closely related. It means literally to place beside. So the idea here is that as the Scriptures are opened, good preachers, those who are faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, will give evidences for their arguments based in the Word of God itself. Friends, we would do well to beware of preaching that doesn't drive us deeper and deeper into God's Word. You see, preaching isn't ultimately about the personality of the preacher or the positions the preacher holds. It's about what does God Himself say. Finally, that last verb, proclaim, means to, to herald or to set forth or to announce something publicly and plainly. Now, when you combine all of these ideas, then we can almost taste the yummy flavors of healthy preaching. It's what gives us a good, steady diet that we might grow up in Christ, mature in Him. Sometimes it's wrongly taught or thought that becoming a Christian means you have to be sort of someone who checks your brain at the door. You stop thinking in order to start believing and that you just sort of turn off coherent thought and replace it with magical, wishful thinking. But notice how different that is than what Paul himself did. Friends, the, the principal claim of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is the center point of all things, that He's, he's the creator, He's the sustainer, He's the redeemer, He's the king. He's the beginning and the end. He's the, the slaughtered Savior and the sovereign Lord. Those are a lot of claims. 
And we Christians don't make these claims based on some sort of intuition or mystical, vague notions of something that might be true. No, we base them on what God says in His Word. We are people who've been persuaded above anything and everything on the plain, rational, evidence-based, grammatical, historical study of God's Word that those are truths, that they're facts. Friend, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, then understand that everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. The Scriptures say that Jesus suffered for sinners, died in their place, and rose again in victory. What do you think about that? What will you do with that news? If you're unfamiliar with this story, this true historical story of Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to take up the Scriptures and read. You could do that by taking one of those blue Bibles in the back, or if you're watching online, to simply uh, look up a version of the Bible like New Living or English Standard and read it electronically. I'd suggest you start with the book of Mark. Mark is one of four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, and it's the shortest, therefore you might actually finish it. That would be great, right? Pick up the book of Mark. It's only got... 16 chapters, and read it. And don't stop thinking in order to sort of drum up belief. No, take it and study it. Read it carefully. Talk to the Lord about it in prayer, even if you're not so sure that you believe it yet. Visit with other people who know more. Use your mind. This is by far the most important matter you could ever give attention to. Because if Jesus is who Paul said he is, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then he will become for you the fountain of eternal life through which every thirst you have can be quenched forever. Now, when this gospel word of King Jesus is preached, what will be the result We've seen this before in Acts, but there's a lot of you here who are here for the first time, and that's so wonderful. There is a particular way in which people tend to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we'll see that as we read ahead in just a moment. But that way is simply this. Some believe, and they become followers of Christ, and others refuse to believe and stand in opposition. These, of course, could not be more different than each other, but they are the two common responses. Look how this happened in the city of Thessalonica, starting in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. 
And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see these two responses so clearly. On the one hand, some people heard the gospel in Thessalonica and they were persuaded. They believed. Now notice though, the way verse 4 talks about that. The reason I point that out is because it's not often the way today following Jesus is thought of. It says in verse 4 that they joined Paul and Silas. Meaning, the Christian faith from the very beginning is thoroughly communal. Now, to, to enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you've got to go in a single file line through the door of belief yourself. You don't get in by proxy. You don't get in by being born in a family where there's believers. You don't get in because you've had a roommate who told you something about Jesus. No, every person must personally decide what they will do with the claim that Jesus is king. But once you believe, once you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And instantaneously, that salvation will mean that you become a new person and you are joined to a new family. You're immediately ushered into a relationship with brothers and sisters who also believe. The mission in the book of Acts is not merely to save individual sinners, pat them on their heads, and say, go follow Jesus as a private personal enterprise. No, the, the mission in the book of Acts is what God's mission has always been. God's mission, His plan, His great endeavor, has always been to have a global people for Himself. And so joining with Jesus means joining with Jesus' followers. This is why in every city that we see the gospel go forward in the book of Acts, we have not mere individual Christians, but we have individuals trusting Christ and therefore becoming part of a new church. Being persuaded of Jesus and committing yourself to Him inevitably means you are also going to commit yourself to a particular group of brothers and sisters. Why? Because you need them. Because the very means that God uses to strengthen us and keep us and hold us in the faith is one another's support. Christianity is not a solo sport. You can't commit yourself to Jesus and refuse to commit yourself to Jesus' people. To hear Jesus is king and to believe it, in the words of Acts 17, is to join Paul and Silas. It's to become part of a, a group. To not do so would be like you telling me, I like you, Chuck, can we hang out, but I want nothing to do with your wife. That, of course, would never happen. It would be much more likely the other way around. However, you get the point. To not want a relationship with the one is to be refusing a relationship with the other. 
The New Testament unpacks this through what we Christians proverbially call the one another's meaning. The Bible's full of wonderful means through which we can encourage each other in the faith. Things like praying for each other, confessing our sins to one another, rejoicing with each other, serving one another, weeping with one another. These are all things family do. And we do them not because we're the same, not because we have the same skin color or the same background or the same education or the same amount of money, or because we necessarily find each other to be the easiest people to get along with. Now, we do these things precisely because we have joined with Jesus and therefore joined with Jesus' people. But we also see in this paragraph that not everybody believed. Enjoy that beverage. <laughs> not everybody believed. You see, there were some certainly who would have heard the teaching of Paul and his team and would have been unconvinced but wouldn't have caused problems. But the passage doesn't tell us about those people. No, it tells us about people who didn't believe and who were intent to stir up trouble. In fact, the passage highlights the fact that some who heard the preaching were willfully ignorant and violently envious. It's very likely these were the leaders of the synagogue, that gathering of Jewish believers. Friends, what happens if someone is in a position of power and you have been part of them, but then you join with someone else? Well, of course, that means you're no longer with them. And when people have some sense that they are losing power, then they can resort to all kinds of terrible things. The solution here in Acts 17 that these men came up with was to instigate a riot. It was to cause by force an attempt to get rid of Paul and Silas. I'm reading a fascinating book right now called The Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray. And in this book, he does a terrific job of describing what's happening in our own day related to this sort of mob mentality. The opening paragraph in his book has this sentence, quote, people are behaving in ways that are increasingly irrational, feverish, and herd-like, end quote. Can you see that? Well, it turns out that isn't only today. This has been happening a long, long time. Organized, peaceful protests are good and right, but the violent mobs with selfish agendas that stir up trouble are wrong. If you read through the book of Acts carefully, you'll find that there's a whole bunch of times there is a riotous mob stirred up. You'll also find that every single time that happens, it was caused by people who opposed the gospel. This is instructive for us. You see, we Christians are people who submit ourselves to the governing authorities. We're not people who are intent and focused on stirring up problems. We pray for the state. 
We recognize the government is an imperfect but divinely ordained institution for our good. Now, as this mob got bigger and bigger, they were unsuccessful in finding Paul and Silas, but they did find a guy named Jason. Now, this isn't the Jason with the mask in those movies you shouldn't be watching. This is very likely Jason would have been a brand new Christian who, upon hearing the gospel, invited Paul and Silas and Timothy to come stay with him. And so he was practicing hospitality. It's probably also likely that the new church was meeting in his house. And so when this mob intent on violence couldn't find Paul and Silas, instead, they drug Jason out. And their accusation against him, and more importantly, Paul, was a very serious one in the ancient world. It was insurrection. They claimed that because Paul was preaching Jesus is king, that must mean that Paul was also saying you must refuse to submit to the leadership of secular governments. In other words, they interpreted Paul as saying he was seeking to bring a physical revolution. But friends, that's not at all the case. Remember, church, that ultimately our our allegiance that we pledge to is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? However, that King, King Jesus, directs us not to tyrannical self-rule, but to peaceful engagement in society in which we are glad to submit ourselves to the state. Now, we live in a day in which this is hotly disputed and in which there are lots of difficult questions that need untangling. Nevertheless, if you think that's complicated in the United States in 2020, imagine what it would have been like to live under Roman rule in the first century. They had no vote. They had no civil rights. They had no court of appeals. Many of us might do well to let worldly politics concern us less and heavenly praises occupy us much more. You see, whether Trump wins again in November or whether Biden replaces him. One thing we know for sure is it will only be a maximum of eight years until neither one of those men are in power. That is a tiny, tiny little bit of time. But Jesus, on the other hand, will be sitting and ruling and reigning on his throne forever. And so we submit ultimately to Jesus Yet we submit proximately to either Trump or Biden. And we do so without tremendous indigestion. Because we know that ultimately our king is the one in final authority. And so we don't stir up trouble. Now eventually Jason was released on deposit and delivered Paul and Silas safely out of town. Another city 
more people believing, more people rejecting, more attempts at violence, and on to the next city. Like a shampoo bottle I hope you use today, wash, rinse, repeat, Paul went into a new city, did the same thing, and we'll find in the next passage, again, the same. Look with me if you would at verse 10. The brothers, meaning the the new church in Thessalonica, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. Would not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men? But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. They were stubborn dudes, weren't they? Verse 14, And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, you're, you're incredibly intelligent people. So you no doubt noticed that much of the events that happened in this second city, Berea, are the same as what happened in the first city, Thessalonica. Some believed Others rejected. Beloved, that's a helpful reminder for those of us who so ache for friends, family, co-workers, teachers, students to come to know Christ. As we who have enjoyed the grace and mercy of God in Christ so long that others would too, particularly those we love, we can sometimes be discouraged at the response. And yet, we see here that not all will believe. Some do and some don't. Our responsibility is to share the gospel indiscriminately and to demonstrate its truthfulness by living changed lives. God's responsibility is to save. And save he will. But this mixed reaction has always been the way people respond. Some believe, some don't. But may that not keep us from sharing, because the sharing is the means by which God will save. And so a lot of these things are the same in these two cities, and yet there is one noticeable area of distinction between the first city and the second. I wonder if you caught it. In fact, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 15, are written in such a way that the distinction between the two cities is what the passage is ultimately about. It is the, the hinge upon which these two cities swing and work together. On a whole, the difference between the Jews in the first city and the Jews in the second city is one of disposition or attitude. Let me show you that by reading again from verse 11. 
Now, those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In this context, to be noble means to have a generous open-mindedness. It's, it's to be a person of eager receptivity. To be noble is when you hear a sermon, rather than letting that preached word hit you and bounce off against your own preconceived biases and prejudices in such a way that it does not bear fruit. Instead, it's to listen to the preached word and then to go to the scriptures themselves and examine the scripture for yourself to see, did that sermon accurately convey the truth about Jesus or not? As Paul preached, Christ from the Old Testament, which certainly would have included Genesis and Psalms and Isaiah, the people of Berea were receptive. They, they listened to the sermon with their Bibles open. We might oddly say today, they put their masks in the text. No doubt they would have been intrigued by the message Paul shared, but that intrigue isn't what ultimately was persuasive to them. You see, they understood no preacher has any authority or trustworthiness at all if he steps outside of what God says. The point in the end isn't the preacher. The point is Christ. They gave themselves to eagerly and attentively hearing and careful, cautious, serious examination. This is such a vital lesson for us today. Christian or non-Christian alike, what is your attitude towards God's Word? What is your disposition? This passage shows us that your attitude will have much to do with the outcome of the Word of God on your life. It is possible to listen to an awful lot of Scripture and it not to make much difference at all. How does that happen? What happens if you don't examine the Word and seek to see if it's true? We mustn't be people who rush away from God's Word to the rest of life. If we do, if we hear God speak through His Word, and then we simply run away without careful examination, then the endless variety of things today that we have to worry about and be anxious about will choke out that Word. It will not bear fruit. Instead, let us be people who let the Sunday sermon drive the tone for the rest of the week. Let this be the way we start in order that it leads us to engagement in the Bible, not only now, but every day. Because this is a whole way of life. Now, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. You have to know huge theological terms. You've got to earn a PhD in Bible. Friend, it doesn't even mean you have to be a person who your 
most enjoyable thing in life is to sit with a good book. But it does mean that your attitude is one of openness to what God would say and that you test it not by what you like or not by the personality of the person who spoke it, but you test it by the word itself. The issue, again, is attitude. Prayerfully putting your face in the word and asking God to convince you. Don't expect that kind of work to be easy. It won't be. And in some ways it gets easier with repetition, but in other ways it will always remain to grind. As one preacher I read this week put it, the word of God is not a microwave meal. It takes time to cook. And so as we hear the preached word, then we have to go and let it soak. We've got to chew on it. We've got to resign ourselves to a lifetime of slow feasting on truth. Frankly, we learn from this passage that we will never grow in Christ beyond where we are in our commitment to an attitude of careful examination of the word. You see, we all have prejudices. We all are not unbiased. And that bias in the first city is what caused those Jews not to go to the Scriptures. And yet, in the second city, they were aware of their biases, and therefore they were willing to go to the Word. So, friend, take up the Scriptures and read. And be especially eager to study the Bible and trust what it says in the areas you don't want to. Those are the areas in which you most need to heed what God says. Topics like sexuality and gender and politics and money, these are places where our biases are perhaps the strongest and in which we need to listen to God the clearest. Now notice the difference in their attitude is what resulted in the dramatic difference in the outcome. Meaning, verse 12 includes the word therefore. That therefore is there in order to communicate that the Jews in this second city believed precisely because they were willing to get into the Scriptures for themselves. God's Word is the standard by which all truth claims must be judged. And when we give the Word the time it deserves, God will incrementally and wonderfully change our lives. Friend, if you're not in the habit of regularly examining what you hear in light of the Scriptures, there's no time like today to start. The Lord will use that to grow you in Him. You see, this gospel, this message of King Jesus, will be met by two responses, glad submission and stubborn rejection. What will determine which group you fall into? Your attitude. Will you take the word and read 
Read humbly. Read honestly. Study carefully. I hope so. May Churchill Mill be overflowing with Berean-like hearers. May God's word have the final say over every matter to which it speaks. And may we be people who live like that, believing that, and doing so in a joyful, happy, glad way. May we not become grumpy and arrogant and pig-headed. And of course, may this kind of life spill out beyond these walls into bold evangelistic action throughout the week. For we live in a city that so desperately needs to hear there is a better king. A king who rules with love and mercy and truth. A king who's gentle and lowly. A king who's humble. A king who's high and lifted up. And yet who is willing to stoop all the way to death in order that all who believe in him would have his life forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your scriptures would be heard now like the Burians, that we would not allow this preached word to simply bounce off our own ideas and worries, but that we'd take it and we'd see, is it what God says? Is Jesus really king? And as we find that you are, in fact, king, we ask that our lives would be shaped more and more and more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name. Amen.